Well, should we get started then? Yeah, probably. Hi everyone, here we are again to talk about a movie, boy. Yeah, so <laughs> we're talking about the 2009 documentary Collapse, which is a bit of an odd documentary. The whole thing is basically just one interview with a man named Michael Rupert, who uh, I guess the uh, the ungenerous way to describe him would be that he was a professional conspiracy theorist. That's fair, actually. I, I don't think it's that ungenerous. <laughs> it's it's not the uh, not the descriptor that he would choose, but um. how did you feel as you began watching this? What was it? It's just a long interview. There's a few like it's like 80 minutes long. There's a few like animated sequences illustrating stuff that he's saying throughout. But for the most part, it's and like stock footage, and... right? But for the most part, it's him in a room while the director gives a passable and of Errol Morris. And they seem to be, the interview seems to be taking place in like the kind of room where you would expect to see in like a, a Cold War spy thriller, you'd expect to see the Stasi interrogating a resistance guy or something. Like it's, it's like a dark basement with brick walls and it's kind of, a, it was a very dramatic choice. And he's, he's like sitting there chain smoking through the whole thing. And yep. It's, uh, he's a, he's a character. He's an interesting guy, but he's literally the only like he's the only person on the cast list. Yeah. So I did not remember a lot about this movie going into it. And I had well, I had several moments, but I I specifically remember about three minutes in being like, oh, I know this tone. This person is not well. <laughs> <laughs> what was the uh, what was the. The moment. I'm curious. I, I think the first moment, it may have been a little more than three minutes, but it was, I think the first moment was when he was talking about his background and how his parents were both in the intelligence community in various ways. And he joined the LAPD and they pulled him aside and asked him why he had Q clearance. He had the Q clearance thing stuck out to me for and sure. And he was like, <laughs> I didn't know what that was. And I asked my dad and he said, oh yeah, you just, you have to have that in case I leave my briefcase open at home. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, it's a higher clearance than than top secret. And I was just like, that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. See, I I was wondering about that, too, because I'm, like there's no way you could have a clearance higher than top secret and not know it. There's not. And also, if your father is a fucking intelligence agent. Right. He's just going to leave his briefcase <laughs> open at home. Yeah, I, I did. I kind of wondered if maybe there was something there that was like poorly explained or kind of glossed over that. I, I don't know that maybe there would be he would be on some sort of list of, you know, immediate family members of people with that level of clearance or whatever. But I don't know. It was. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there was that moment and there was a moment shortly after when he talked about all of his exploits with the LAPD and his challenges there and stuff. And then he just like for the first time, but not the last time in the movie says that he has had people try to kill him. He's been shot at, et cetera, with no backing. <laughs> No explanation yeah, of what. Yeah, that was that was interesting because he, yeah, he said that he was approached by people in the CIA to ask, to asking him to help them with this with their plan to distribute drugs in the U.S. and he refused. And what he said was, people started shooting at me. Yes. But he did not elaborate on that at all. Yes. 
<laughs> I mean, and you know, they mentioned at this in the the introduction to the documentary, the the voiceover from the directors. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they had originally approached him to be interviewed about a different project that they were working on about drugs because he had he had had this high profile. There's a there's a clip of it in the movie where he spoke at I think it was like an L.A. City Council meeting and and accused the U.S. government of selling drugs in L.A. very publicly, and it was a I guess a big deal at the time. So that so that was why they had originally approached him. But that wasn't really what he was interested in talking about. So they they kind of brushed past all that. I would have been very curious to hear an extensive interview about that stuff, but that wasn't really the the focus. I, mean, I guess, but also I don't trust him. I I believe that for the most part, I came out of it believing that he believed what he was saying, and also believing that he had some mental health problems. I'm sure he did. I mean, I but I well, mean, I mean, I he he did. He he ended up shooting himself a couple of years ago. Well, he, uh, he? this does not seem to actually be that much of a conspiracy. He appeared to make it clear enough that even the people who were prone to be conspiracy theorists around his death were like, yeah, no, this, this definitely seems to have been him. But. I mean, I don't at this point, I don't know that it's really that much of a conspiracy theory that the CIA was smuggling drugs into the U.S. I think we know that that's pretty concrete at this point. No, and that's true. I just wouldn't trust his take. It's, yeah, right. And it's it's interesting how that, you know, uh, who knows if the CIA really approached this guy and asked him to help them. I don't know, maybe. But it's interesting the way that kind of like having been sort of tangentially connected to what was a very real conspiracy theory has perhaps sort of put him on this path of right oh i guess it's all i don't know it's interesting no i I mean it's i definitely like as i was watching it a thing that we probably have not talked about on this is that joel started out before before the QAnon conspiracies became as known as they are now, <laughs> Joel started going down these rabbit trails on Twitter, these hashtags, and he was the first person I heard about them from. And I spent a lot of time watching this. Just to be clear, I was not I was not believing this, the QAnon thing. I was just kind of fascinated by the insanity of it. So I started watching the hashtags and stuff. Yeah, I was not. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to no, clarify that. That's, that's a good clarification. <laughs> No, he he started being like, look at this. What the fuck is this nonsense? And I remember I told several people about it who hadn't heard about it. Now I feel like it's kind of more. Yeah, it's made main mainstream news. But watching it, I was just like, this is very like this is the lead into that. Like this is this is that kind of conspiracy stuff. This is that kind of like he's talking about slightly different things. But to me, I could see a really clear path. I, I was talking to a friend of mine who works in tech and his job is basically uh, to hunt down like fascism and stuff on their servers and figure out how it works and how to and make bots and stuff to help with that. I'm not describing it well and probably don't understand it well. But basically, the point is that this is largely his job. And I told him that I was watching this movie and he was like, oh, my God. He was like, he's like, I mean, it's important for like my work, but I wouldn't recommend anyone watch it. Um, and he, and you know, and I was just like, I don't even understand why this movie is made. And he was like, look, like this is the same era that like Loose Change was made, and like all of these like conspiracy theory documentaries were really big business. And this just sort of falls in that, and is not the worst made one of them. So, <laughs> but I, that's what I found myself thinking about a lot while watching this was like, like I felt bad for this man who to me seemed to clearly have some stuff going on. And then I also was like, this is like troubling to me watching this stuff put forward, like very uncritically with no, <laughs> with no attempt to 
Like, clearly they're just interested and think this is cool and they're going to make this movie. Yeah. The, yeah. No, it's true. There was they didn't really provide any pushback. I think I think basically it was all it was all new to the filmmakers. They just thought it was so interesting that they, you know, kept the camera rolling. And, you know, maybe perhaps their uh, their due diligence would have been to <laughs> to add a little more context in the production process but that's what i thought too but when but when my friend was like pointing out that this was the same era as a lot of these other ones i wasn't so sure anymore i mean he's right like a lot of these early conspiracy theory documentaries that really form a foundation for a lot of the absolute batshit nonsense that we are seeing now were coming out around that time and i i I don't know i don't know the filmmakers obviously but there is a part of me that suddenly went huh did they like see an opportunity not that they weren't mm. interested, but also that maybe it wasn't quite as innocent as I had first had it in my head. Because, yeah, it does seem it, it is right in that time slot. Yeah, see, I don't I don't know that I'm familiar with this wave of documentaries that you're referring to. I mean, I think that it was that one of the things that I found when looking up this guy is that he's he's considered to be sort of the original father, so to speak, of the um, truther movement for 9-11. He, although he, he later distanced himself from that. Doesn't change his responsibility level. And I, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, Loose Change is one of the documentaries that came out about that. And there were there were a series of these in the late 2000s. I haven't watched any of them except for this one. But I do remember like starting to hear about them from people who were clearly concerned about a lot of things that I personally did not feel like were maybe our top causes for concern in the world. So I, I don't know. I, I just contextually, it made me wonder. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I can't speak to that. I don't know. But that is interesting. I would also like to say that my patience for white dudes telling me shit, even that isn't conspiracy theory related, um, is very far down from where it was in 2009. (laughs) So 80 minutes of this motherfucker talking was a lot. But he was basically obsessed with this concept that's known as peak oil. That is essentially that we have, we are on the decline of how much oil we can get from the earth. And that every, that we like peaked at this in like the seventies or something. And that like everything we made, make and do basically requires oil. So essentially we're heading towards an apocalypse well see so this is this is interesting because i agree with you that i you know this guy is is clearly unwell perhaps sees some malignant forces involved in this that are figments of his imagination and i I was not familiar with the concept of peak oil before watching this documentary and i don't think it's something that i've really heard about since but the 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 basic concept of it seems fairly undeniable to me whether his timeline is correct or not it has to happen eventually right i mean i mean probably i also don't think he's wrong in his assertion that there is we don't have anything to replace it with to to fill its its place in our modern society i mean maybe like i feel very strongly while i was watching this i felt extremely strongly that like this is not like this is why he's convincing is because i don't know enough about these things like, this is why he sounds compelling is because, you know, there are definitely people who have all sorts of ideas. And obviously, I think that capitalism is a system that eats itself. And we're we have a lot of we have a lot of problems currently happening um, and also undoubtedly coming. But when it comes to some of this stuff like renewable energies and and all of that kind of stuff, like this is not my specialty. There are people for whom it is their specialty who certainly seem to very genuinely believe that there are ways to make this work. And this seems like like 
he could be right. He could be wrong. I just don't know enough. And I think that part of the danger of these things is that, like, it does play on that part of your brain that's like, okay, yeah, like, that part makes sense. And, like, being ignorant enough of the other elements surrounding it. Like, I suspect that a lot of people who work in renewable energy fields could, like, very easily combat some of the things that he was saying or at least, like, contextualize them a lot better. <clears throat> but because I don't have that information, what I'm left with is that general sense of, yeah, that feels correcty. I don't remember... <laughs> Stephen right. Colbert has a has a word for it. I can't remember, like that 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 sense that something feels right, and so even mm -hmm. though you don't know, you kind of like are like, yeah, I can I can see that because we trust our gut, which is not like a terrible thing inherently, but is maybe not the only thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is this is what I was going to say. Like the, the basic concept that we are eventually going to run out of oil, and that we have allowed oil to become entirely too central to every aspect of our civilization seems pretty undeniable. I'm I'm not necessarily on board with his belief that there's no solution to this, but it also seems fairly clear that we're not really working towards a solution, <laughs> like as a whole, as a society. I mean, I have no idea about his numbers. Like he has this whole thing that he mentioned several times about how, like, for example, electric cars aren't going to fix anything because of the amount of oil that is required to go into the production of an electric car. I think the number he kept going back to was like seven barrels of oil in every tire or something, which I don't that doesn't feel right. But I, you know, again, I don't, I don't really know. But that one does not have a ring of truth to it in my mind. But so I do. It's, it's. I don't believe that it's, it's impossible for there to be solutions to this, which he seemed to. I think that that was fairly central to his. Like his, his whole thing seemed to be that it, it is inevitable that society is going to collapse, and we have to hope that it happens quickly, so that like the, you know, the roads and bridges and all that are still in place so that we can rebuild. <laughs> but, and I, you know, I don't know that it necessarily has to be that drastic. Well, I mean, he was very, he was very into, by, by the end of his life, when he, uh, when he passed, he, um, did you read this article in The Verge, The Unbelievable Life and Death of Michael C. Rupert? Okay, it's a really good article. I guess when I get around to show notes, I'll put it in the show notes. It's an interesting article that contextualizes some of his life and, and sort of what happened at the end of his life. See, he apparently was an alcoholic and was sober for a while, but then wasn't. And there was a lot of stuff happening for him, which is very sad. But um, but also, there doesn't seem to be any question that he really helped kickstart a lot of these extremely dangerous ideas that are still plaguing us. So, um, but he he very much was a believer. You know, we were going to have to we were going to have to rebuild, and we were you know he was living on this like farm with some trailer with some uh, supporters of his who had taken him very seriously and were like essentially becoming self sufficient on the land. And I, I don't know. I mean, there is no doubt that right now I'm just like, I don't fucking know, man. We're in the middle of a goddamn pandemic. And I know that there are like more like I know that there are like longer term things to think about. But also right now we can't figure out what to do when we send children back to school and what to do if we don't. So like, <laughs> it's real hard to think too seriously about what's going to happen after, even though that's not to say that it doesn't warrant being taken seriously. I just I think that to me, like what he was saying was frequently not that interesting to me because I didn't trust him. I didn't believe his I didn't believe his shtick a lot of the time or I didn't believe it was complete. <laughs> I guess I, I thought there was a lot more that I didn't know. But yeah, mostly I just kept coming back to thinking about how this sort of thing has helped fuel our current situation. I guess I guess my reading of him was that there's clearly like he talked about when he did talk briefly about his uh, 
his speech that he gave at the LA City Council meeting. After when he was talking about that, he mentioned that like he said some vague thing about how shortly afterwards all this suspicious stuff happened. And one of the thing, the examples that he mentioned of that was that one of the city council members died of a heart attack. And it showed that city council member who was clearly like in his seventies. Right. <laughs> It's just that's that's not suspicious. That's totally normal. Not suspicious at all. But he he, you know, the, right with his mindset that automatically becomes something that you question. So he definitely had that kind of a, a lot of that kind of thing. My impression of him, though, is that maybe he had I think he's maybe more on to something than most of these guys are, if that makes sense. I think he's I think he's a better I think he's a, a, a more organized thinker than a lot of the a lot of the conspiracy theorist types. But one of, one of the big things that is often talked about with him and that he mentioned briefly in the in the documentary is that he predicted the financial crash, which, you know, he wasn't the only one who did that. I was going to say a lot of people knew the financial crash was coming. Uh, I mean, yeah, th there were definitely people who saw it coming, but there were a lot more people who didn't. I don't know. I, I, I think he was. I think there are aspects of what he was talking about that are worth hearing. I don't think they're worth hearing from him. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to say. I don't think he's a good messenger for them. That's exactly where I was going with that. <laughs> I would be I would be very curious to to hear some real substantive stuff about the concept of peak oil from someone who's a little more grounded. Sure. I I don't know much about the concept. I guess to me, I look at it and I'm like, look, like I said, I don't necessarily think he was lying. Like I don't think he was I don't think he was telling untruths intentionally. Um, I believe I believe he believed what he was saying, which is different and a step um, above below something. Uh, you know, people who I look at and I'm like, you are very clearly like profiting off of something that you know is not true. He definitely was not. He was not profiting. <laughs> no, he was not profiting. He was not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I believe that he believed what he was saying, and I'm not. <sighs> Okay, because when when I look at this and when I look at sort of the the zeitgeist of conspiracies that has grown up, like okay, I remember <laughs> when I was young, I had very little tolerance for conspiracies and still do. Although, of course, as I've grown older, I've realized that some conspiracies, it turned out, were actually correct, but they're very <laughs> they're very rarely the ones that this particular group is obsessed with. For example, it seems extremely clear now that the FBI was. You know, I mean, it is clear that the FBI was deeply involved in pursuing Martin Luther King Jr., for example, that there, like there are things that we have seen and they generally come back to racial class, all of the isms that we currently struggle with and continue to struggle with. And it turns out that as a matter of fact, our government was perhaps doing things that made the situation much worse. And so I've come to be more receptive to the general idea that, that yes, there are things we don't know. And sometimes we find things out later. But okay, so my first memory of coming in contact with conspiracy theories was when I was young and we would listen to Michael Medved. Um, I don't know if this is true for you, but he had a conspiracy theory day. Yeah, every new moon or every, every full moon. moon. Yeah, he did. Every full moon. He would he do a conspiracy, conspiracy day. Yeah, I remember. Um, and people would call in with whatever their conspiracies were. And would try to, t to tell him about them. To, to be fair to Medved, he was very incredulous of basically all of them. He just found it funny. That was yeah. No, he he just <laughs> he was not he was not a he was not pushing these things. He just liked to let people call. In fact, him he in. would argue about them pretty extensively, um, which I mean can be argued is honestly just kind of mean. Um, but that's yeah, true. Maybe. A lot of conservative <laughs> talk radio, and it's you know not the worst possible. Yeah, he was not promoting any of this stuff. <laughs> 
<laughs> Except Bigfoot. He did think Bigfoot might be real. I so. think Bigfoot might be real. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's a different... Uh... Yeah, but that was because what he would bring it up periodically. Yeah. Anyways. And so this was the first place that I started to hear about... Well, the one that always sticks out to me is that the, that when Safeway first started doing uh, customer... Like the cards, Safeway cards, there were a lot of people who were extremely upset about the Safeway cards. And he would call in and try to insist that this was a governmental way of tracking them mm. that Safeway had bought into. And I actually think that listening to Medved on some of this, I, I have a lot of conflicted feelings about Medved, more negative than positive for sure at this point. But I think that a lot of listening to this was actually helpful to me at the time because he was very good at like at like just disemboweling these. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the thing about conspiracy theories, like the, the actual false ones, is that they all tend, like, if you remove any one element, the whole thing will collapse. And he was very good at finding that like the weak element and being like eh, let's let's poke this thing and see if it falls apart and of course it always does well and like for example with the Safeway cards the one I remember is that he brought up he was like okay let's say you're right let's say you're right and this is happening how many people are working like this must be their job Mm -hmm. to go through data that finds out how many eggs you bought this week. Like, what? <laughs> like, how many people are doing this? And how are they hiding what they're doing? Right. Yeah, no, he was... That, that, is, that is usually the easiest thread to pull on conspiracy theories. It's like, okay, how many hundreds of thousands of people would have to be in on this? That's yep. <laughs> not, uh, not let on. And that yeah. was very, I think that was genuinely very helpful to me in how I formulated mm -hmm. my ideas around conspiracies growing up. I don't have a lot of thanks for Medved, but I'll give him that. And I think that as I got older, the first time I ever ran into a conspiracy theory in person, well, into a specific conspiracy theory in person, one could argue that, that a lot of that, people... Uh, that boyfriend of yours who thought the moon landing was fake? <laughs> it sure was. Yeah, I remember that. Fucking, I won't say his name because it's unusual, but... Did, did he really think that, or he had he just latched on to that as like a... No, I, I think he was very genuine. He was, he was very genuine in believing that the moon landing was fake and in believing that Kennedy had been assassinated by the government, neither of which I believed, although I found the moon landing to be more offensive. Um... <laughs> Like offensively stupid. I will say that now he is married, has a kid, and is a fucking anti-vaxxer. So I think no, I, I do believe he believed it, and I think that he was really he was really drawn to these concepts and to this like sort of conspiracy theory mindset. I suspect he is more than an anti-vaxxer now, if I had to mm. guess. And I remember like he was an asshole, like most of my high school boyfriends were. He was pretty verbally abusive, but the thing that I was the most intolerant of was that he would not admit that the fucking moon landing happened. <laughs> and we got in multiple fights about this. Because <laughs> I was just like, this is so stupid. Like, you are not stupid. Why is this so stupid? <laughs> I couldn't get over it. It was so upsetting. <laughs> and, you know... Yeah, that's a rough one. I was talking to a friend the other day and I was just like, you know, I mean, one can make the argument, not unreasonably, that a lot of evangelical thought processes come from similar veins. So that, that a lot of evangelical thought patterns have honestly been formed in this very similar way in which, like, it feels correct 
it backs up this perception of the world that I have. And even though if you start pulling at it, it doesn't really make sense, I can then take that attempt to pull it apart as proof that my ideas are somehow being persecuted. Right. And that, yeah, no, that is always, that, that is one of the highlights of conspiracy theory mindset that any evidence presented that opposes your view is taken as further proof that your view is correct. Yeah. And I didn't think, okay, so like probably a good example, and this was not by no means like specific to evangelicalism. Um, however, evangelicalism certainly was a huge part of it was satanic panic, right? Like mm -hmm. you have this honestly fucking absurd <laughs> sets of accusations with no evidence whatsoever. And in fact, plenty of evidence that it's not true. In fact, in all of the years that this has been a thing, we have never gotten any evidence <laughs> that any of the satanic ritualistic abuse of children happened. And now here we are and it's 2020 and we've we've moved into a new incarnation of that, which is essentially Pizzagate and that sort of thing. And I just because when I look at this, I don't necessarily look at Michael Rupert and say, like, this is his fault. I don't think that's fair. I have genuine questions about the moral obligations of the people who were lifting up his message, who clearly, you know, did not have the same struggles that he had and who were not given to thinking about this critically or to contextualizing this and who apparently did not think it would matter if they put it forward or thought it would make them money or whatever. Like, I have a lot of genuine questions about that. I mean, it's also possible that they found him entirely convincing and that they thought it was important to get the word out. <laughs> that is also a possibility. But, you know, there's problems there, too. But that is a possibility. Maybe. I just, yeah. I don't know. I really, I struggle with, I mean, it's not like conspiracy theories have, I, I, I suspect conspiracy theories have always been around. I think they're part of like the way that people try to make the universe make more sense. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, when I, our parents were not conspiracy theorists. Not, like, compared to a lot of evangelicals. No. You know, they, they were not invested in or believed in the satanic panic stuff, to my knowledge. I guess I don't know how they felt about the ritualistic abuse stuff. But, like, they, you know, part of what happened during the satanic panic was this huge wave within the 80s of people, like, people saying that Saturday morning cartoons were vehicles of Satan. And, right. Like, and, you know, I, yeah, I don't know how they felt about that at the time. It, but if... If they bought into it at the time, I think it's fair to say that they were over it by the time we were around and cognizant. Because, I mean, there was a very similar thing with Harry Potter when we were kids. And they were they thought that was just the biggest joke in the world. They thought it was so fucking dumb that all these people believed that Harry Potter books were leading people down the path to Satan. They so. had no patience for the general idea that... That fantasy was a, a route to Satan, partly because they liked fantasy, um, partly because I think they did not believe Satan was as active in the world as some people. Yeah, did. our parents were not the like, you know, demons around every corner kind of Christian. Yeah, no, that they weren't that. Yeah, so that would have been way too dramatic for them. Much too dramatic, much too dramatic, much too hands on, I think. And yet, when I look back, I think of, well, I think of two things. I think, one, they did not believe that Satan was around every corner, and I'm glad that they didn't. I certainly know a lot of people who suffered because their parents believed that nonsense. However, there was they did believe that the liberal agenda was behind, behind every corner. Yeah. And, and that's complicated because, like, sometimes they were probably right, but, like, I support the agenda such as it is exactly um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> they saw it as a threat to civilization but yeah well and the frustrating thing with that being that like they did not acknowledge their own agenda like the the word agenda was used as like fear-based thing 
that like these, you know, people are coming and trying to trying to brainwash our children. But like, dude, you're taking me to church like six fucking hours a week. And I <laughs> like you are also trying to put forward an agenda. Yeah. But you don't like to use that word. And I think mom was more into that than dad was or differently into that. But then again, our father also genuinely believed that in the course of our lifetimes, the churches in America would be driven underground and we'd, <laughs> we'd all be in danger of getting shot at for worshiping Jesus in America. He, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't like an obsession of his. But if you asked him, he would tell you that he right. didn't think like that would happen. It was like if you scratch the surface, you would find it. And I, I very distinctly remember the first time that he said that to me. Not the first time he said it to me, but the first time he said it to me, and that I was like, "Wait, how?" <laughs> like, and I mean, I think I was probably in my late teens. I was probably way too old. But like, you know, and I know you and I talked about it at the time, being like, "Wait, what?" What are, like, the action steps that would be required mm-hmm. for us to get to this point in the next 60 years or whatever? And then at some point I did try to push him on that. And, in, and instead of giving me any kind of actual answer, he talked about, like, sort of anonymous court cases that were currently in the courts and were attempting to strip us of our rights. And I, I do remember this because I very distinctly remember being like, that doesn't make sense. But... <laughs> You don't know what you're talking about, actually. So I think that they had those tendencies. Do you remember how Dad felt about this movie? Because I don't. I don't, and I, I wish I did, but I don't recall. But see, I feel like his his response to this kind of thing, I don't think he would have been on board with it because he's, you know, he is the type of conservative who thinks that global warming is all a hoax. And, yeah. you know, in basically anything that's going to be a threat to his ability to drive his car every day, he's going to write off without giving it any real consideration. So I, I, I doubt that he was really on board with it. And also, I'm sure he thinks that the idea that the U.S. government would ever sell drugs in America is insane. So from the get-go, I, I suspect he was probably put off. No, I, that's what I thought, too, while I was watching it. Um, both of our parents think that the idea of climate change is a liberal hoax, unless something has changed, which it doesn't seem likely. No. Uh, <laughs> so, and while this dude's philosophy did not, like, strictly rely on climate change... It has the same sort of we're winding down mentality to it, which I think if you are an evangelical who believes that God is coming back, who believe like, like it is very it is very real that if you think that this earth is going to all be destroyed in fire and God is going to do all these things, like even if you are not actively like, fuck the earth, let's fuck it up, which there are people who do seem to think that way. Um, but that wasn't our parents. Like, you know, whatever. We recycled. Like, we, we, did, like, we did, you know, basic stuff. I do think it changes your perception of these concerns. Like, even if you believed in climate change, like the belief that God is like, God has it in control. God is going to figure it out. God is going to come back and take people away. Like you don't worry about the next generation in the same way, right? Like you don't. Yeah. I mean, particularly if you believe that, that that is imminent, which again, our parents were not as on board with the, like, you know, the end is coming any day philosophy as a lot of American Christians. It was not like an obsession of theirs, but I think in a general sort of way, they believed that like it was going to happen and it was probably going to happen soon. And, you know, whatever might be going on with global warming, that's on a very long time scale and we probably just don't need to worry about it that much. I think that that's kind of their, yeah, I mean, their I general think, approach. Mom 
actually specifically seemed very stressed out by end time stuff in a way I don't fully understand. But I mean, don't get me wrong. It's fucking stressful. But I don't understand why that specific thing was like not her thing. Like she like refused to read the left behind books and stuff, which I mean, you know, lucky her. But because she said it made her it made her anxious. I mean, I don't think she said anxious, but that's what it worked out to. Well, she she had that about that's that's kind of her attitude towards like thriller type stories in general, though. I mean, she would she would, you know, like basically anytime we were watching a movie that she decided was too intense, she would just go to the other room and read instead like that. She is just not her kind of storytelling, I think. I'm not sure that that was I don't know that that was directly related to the the theological content of Left Behind. I think it just wasn't her thing. I just remember her specifically telling me at some point that she didn't like reading or didn't wasn't interested particularly in the end times. Whereas dad had a much more, he thought it was a great joke. Well, that's what I was going to say. Dad's approach to it was the same as, as everything else. He just thinks it's fun to talk about. Right. And he, he had the, the joke that he had gotten from Pastor John at the church in Seattle um, that was that he wasn't uh, pre-trib or post-trib. He was pan-trib. Which is right. God was going to make it all pan out in the end. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But he clearly, you know, neither of our parents are people who are going to, like, you know, go down a rabbit hole of trying to determine, like, what this what this verse is referring to and how it's like, and like, you know, the end is coming next week. Like, that, that is not the kind of household that we were raised in. And I always thought people who believed those things were crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, my understanding of evangelicalism meant that you, you didn't, you didn't do this. I mean, people did. But my understanding was that it was, it was not... It was not what God called us to, I guess. Mm-hmm. Why did we watch this? Well, I mean, I, I you know, I don't remember what our uh, what our exact discussions were or whatever. But I mean, there's there's plenty of interesting stuff to talk about. And it said, you know, we we I think at the time it probably would have been uh, even you know more compelling, fascinating to us than it is now, certainly. I don't even remember how we found out about this movie, because I, I mean, I know that it has its following or whatever, but I don't feel like I've heard anyone mention this movie since we watched it. I'm going to look it up, but I'm pretty sure it was because Ebert wrote a review on it. That's possible. I think he was really into it. Yep, four stars. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> see this and weep, it's already too late, we're done for, is the title of this review. <laughs> he started out by saying, I have no way of assuring you that the bleak version of the future outlined by Michael Rupert in Christmas Collapse is accurate. I can only tell you that I have a pretty good built-in BS detector and its needle never bounced off zero while I watched this. There is controversy over Rupert and he has many critics, but one simple fact at the center of his argument is obviously true and it terrifies me. And then he talks about peak oil, which I think is really fascinating because I actually think that that Ebert frequently did have a pretty good BS detector. and But like, dude, <laughs> mine was bouncing all over the fucking place. <laughs> And I don't think that says something negative about Ebert so much as it says something about the way in which the way in which we've had to adapt to these concepts being presented and how it sounds different now than maybe it did in 2009 or 2000 or throughout much of Ebert's life. And so to me, I watched it at this point where I feel like I have had, you know, multiple years now of figuring out, you know, the tells for when people are, you know, telling me something that is either they know not to be true or just doesn't make sense. And I do think those are different things, like knowing if somebody is lying versus knowing if somebody is incorrect or like is off on a trail. For me personally, I'll say that there there are not that this is the only thing, but there are two words that will set off my BS detector in almost any context. Mm -hmm. 
which he used multiple times in this movie. Those two words are by gold. Yes. It does not make any sense to me that that would be any kind of realistic safeguard against the kind of situation that he's talking about. Well, no, because... (laughs) But for some reason, this is an obsession with people who are convinced that the world is ending is that you have to own gold. And I don't... It doesn't make any sense to me. It seems such an antiquated way of looking at things. And yeah, so that that immediately I was like, really, man, that you're you're going the gold route. That's <laughs> well, I think you know this is actually a part of the movie that did interest me when he was when he was talking essentially about money being meaningless. Fiat currency, right? The thing is, I money is all pretend. Gold is pretend. Well, gold right. is that's exactly it. The, the, there's there's the <laughs> the idea that gold is inherently worth more than the the pieces of paper in my pocket doesn't make any more sense than anything else that the idea that our currency should have to be backed up by you know some other random substance that we found in the ground doesn't make any sense so the, the, the his whole argument that fiat currency is like a slippery slope to doomsday doesn't add up to me no, I mean, I think that when you look at it and you're like, okay, like gold, everything that has value has value because we fucking assigned it value. Right. And of course, that's not as easy as just flipping a switch, but it does mean that sometimes we stop assigning things value. Sometimes we assign new things value. And that new thing is not more or less valid than the previous random ass shit that we assigned value to. The only thing that would potentially be more valuable is if you're in like a doomsday scenario is like practical shit. Seeds. He talked about that. That would be a good currency. And that makes sense to me. Having actual like organic seeds. I could see that being a very valuable currency. Right. Unless you are going back to actual fucking trading yeah. like, and barter, like anything you assign value to is just that. And it's interesting because when I was watching this, I was like, I wonder if this is the first time I ever saw someone talk about the idea that money was basically made up. Mm-hmm. Because that certainly wasn't something I thought about growing up, but it's something I believe very strongly now. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the whole I think it's a fairly standard talking point among conservative conspiracy theory types. The whole idea that the break from the gold standard in American currency was the end of of, you know, it was the beginning of the end of America. And we need to go back to that if we want to save it. It's, like, I, I don't under, I, I can't get my head around the argument that that would fix anything, but it is an obsession for a lot of people. And it was definitely one of his points that he hit on multiple times. I, I agree with you. I think that is definitely one of the things. Like, I have found as I as I go along, like, I really do try sometimes to figure out, like, what are the specific things that make me be like, eh, like, that's, that seems incorrect. Yeah. I don't know why yet, but I feel like you're wrong. Because obviously I did not have that for a very long time because you literally cannot sit through any fucking evangelical sermon. Mm-hmm. But I remember the first, do you remember the first time that you realized that someone lied in a sermon? Mm, uh, I don't have a, nothing jumps to mind when you say that, no. Okay, I was in my mid-twenties, and it was at our old church, Crossroads, and the pastor was talking about whatever, and at some point during the service, this was shortly before I left, so at some point during the service, he said that Christianity was the fastest growing religion. And I was like, that's wrong. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> what? And not only 
is that wrong? But I guarantee you that if I looked back throughout your sermons in the past year, I would be able to find some place where you said that Muslim, that um, Islam was the fastest growing religion. Right. Or at least said that Christianity was shrinking or something. Exactly. I could probably, it probably didn't even take six months. And like, I I was sitting there and everyone is sitting around me and like nodding and listening. And I was like, like, I felt crazy. But, and so I literally like pulled out my phone in the middle of surface and started googling it and of course no it's like the third or fourth wait where did you say this was was this at the as a crossroads okay yeah yeah okay and you know i don't know what but like okay because my instinct is not to assume that people are lying yeah like like maybe wrong but not lying and that was the first time when i was when i was looking at this and i was just like you know that's a lie. You know that is a lie because you have definitely talked about other things that directly contradict it. Like what? And I was so bothered. Like I was so upset. And I like talked to several. You know, I was friends with a few people at church, and I like went and tried. And they and they just kind of waved it off. They were like, "Oh, I'm sure he. I'm sure you misunderstood. I'm sure he didn't mean to say that." I'm sure, and I was like, <laughs> "What?" And I actually went to him and was like, this is not correct. I don't remember this. Was this after I left? It was. Like I said, it was shortly before I left. So I was probably, I was probably like 27. And I like went to him and was like, um, (laughs) and this was, Joe and Rachel had already left. So. Okay. So this must've been after I moved to Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was after you moved to Portland. And he just kind of like shrugged it off and was like, oh, I, you know, must've misquoted that. Or maybe I, I didn't, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something. And I was just like, you lied. And I know that it's naive to some extent to think that people don't lie. But one of the things that has been genuinely hardest in my post-Christian life, especially in the first few years, was realizing that many of the people who had sort of created the the philosophies that I had grown up with and that had really damaged me in a lot of ways had lied. Like not just been incorrect, they had known and they lied about it. And to me, that is a different thing. I actually sometimes have a harder time telling that because, again, my desire is not to think that someone is lying. Right. I I have a hard time with that, too. Uh, My natural inclination is to try to come up with what they might have misunderstood to lead them to this belief or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, I still am inclined to think that for most people, it's more that they're overly credulous than that they're lying and that they've, you know, they've heard it from these people that they trust and these people are lying to them. I still think that's, that is generally the case, but I, yeah, I I have a hard time. I think probably I'm, I tend to be a little bit overly generous maybe in terms of like how many layers up you have to go to find the liars, you know? I think this (laughs) is a result of being raised with our dad. Probably. Although on the other, I don't know. I'm, I have mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, particularly when it comes to like authority figures, we were, I guess, raised to trust authority figures, I guess it's fair to say. But we were also raised to just assume that everyone was always evil and, you know, were probably lying for their own benefit. I mean, everyone outside of the church. Yeah, I guess. But I, I'm not even talking about just with the church. I'm talking about on a larger scale. I, uh, this is. Well, sure. And I, I definitely believed growing up that many liberals were telling outright lies about abortion and all of these things. But I do think, I guess what I, what I, what I connected to dad with, and maybe you don't, but what I connected to dad with is when I think about, and this will come up with some of the later movies we talk about, where we would watch a movie about the church dramatically failing, like doing something fucking evil. (laughs) 
like, you know, spotlight wasn't out yet, but I can already, I can still imagine what the conversation would have been like if it wasn't. Right. I mean, yeah, there's a movie that we'll get to eventually called Amen that is, yeah, uh, yeah I assume that's the main one you were thinking of. That was that's the main one the I was thinking of, although I think it came up about other things. It came up when we watched the movie about Luther. It came oh, up yeah. there. Where dad, dad's stance would be to say, one, the church wasn't perfect because it was made up of people. However... Hindsight is always twenty twenty, and we can't judge them. Right. I mean, this is this is not just with the church. That is the conservative view of all historical figures. You know, everyone supported slavery in the seventeen hundreds. So, <laughs> and even though that's not true, it's not true uh, at all. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that when I when I think about that, I think about that constant that urge to defend these these people, these like major figures, in spite of all these other things, and the belief that if you just went deep enough, you could figure out why. And some of that, too, is just me being a fucking social worker. Like, our, <laughs> that is part of what we do, is not necessarily, you know, not like say that something is okay, but like what led to this thing? Like, where is the trauma that brought you to here? <laughs> like, that, that is a thing that I do. But I do think that that was a lot because of dad, both because of the ways that he personally defended a lot of these things, and also because of the cognitive somersaults that I had to go through to defend him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to defend mom, to some extent. Like, you know, to defend the fact that I lived in a family that I had to believe was okay, when it very much was not. <laughs> and so I think, you know, the the more I start, like, I think what often happened with with all of us is that dad theoretically wanted to teach us critical thinking and then accidentally did. And <laughs> the more questions we started to ask about things, like the fewer answers came back. I don't know. That's that's my experiment experience anyway. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, I mean, do I like I do I blame conservative talk radio and Rush Limbaugh for a lot of that? Fuck yes, I do. Yeah. Do I think that Rush Limbaugh is fucking lying all the time and is profiting of it? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't see any reason to give him the benefit of the doubt. So <laughs> I think we're past that. When I look at the difference between being able to tell if someone is outright lying versus being able to tell if someone has been taken in by something, I think that that you know is not necessarily trustworthy. I think that that when I look at Ebert talking about that, and of course. I have a deep fondness for Ebert, so I have a natural inclination to defend him. But, mm-hmm. but like, that I think, okay, like, that's contextual. Like, what I recognize now as buzzwords and, like, you know, I know what to look for, but that would differ completely depending on what it was, like, on when we were. Like, that's just what is true now. And I think that's what was interesting to me about going back and watching this, is that I felt like I saw a lot of the early dog whistles in ways that I wouldn't have recognized at the time, and that now feel to me like clear dog whistles for things that I do recognize. Yeah. I don't know if I have a lot else to say about this. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just generally like a... Yeah, I don't, I don't think I really had anything else either. Were you glad we watched it? Yeah. I was very bored for a lot of it. <laughs> Really? I, I did not have that issue. I okay. I did. I mean, like, whether I believed him or not, I did find him pretty compelling to listen to. I think I found it really sad. There was definitely a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, this is, again, based a lot on my own on my own training and stuff. You know, like to me, I was like, you know, I, I don't believe in diagnosing people from a distance. But, you know, I was like, this guy is sick and I think it is irresponsible to give him the platform that he is being given right now mm-hmm. and dangerous to him, which I think it was. 
and I, I don't know that he would have not ended up the way he had if he had not been in this movie, but I think that that to me it felt unethical. So that's that's interesting because I so did you look at the did you look up the director at all, Chris Smith? Uh he, he sounded familiar, but I didn't uh So I haven't actually seen any of his other stuff, but in the last few years, he's had a couple of documentaries that were fairly high profile, including he did one of the Fire Festival documentaries. I don't, I didn't watch either of those, so I don't know which one is which. If he, the one he did was called the one he did was called Fire, I don't know if that was the one that was supposed to be good or not. Because I, what I heard was that one of them was good and one of them wasn't. I don't know. I think the Netflix one, one of them, one of them used the perspective of the creator of Fire Festival, and one of them, and one of them was more pulled back. Let's see if I get it. I don't, you know, since their names were Fire and fire yeah i think this is the bad one yeah this is the one with billy this is i think the one with billy mcfarley maybe oh no just his archive anyway but he also did the movie jim and andy uh which i believe is a netflix thing it's a documentary about jim carrey and his portrayal of andy kaufman in man on the moon and i remember i didn't see that one either but i remember hearing a lot of people complain about the the sort of ethical approach that that movie took to some things to clarify to clarify his was the one that was netflix one that was less less bad than okay um so at any rate i don't you know i i don't know I, I, I don't know for you know i have no idea what kind of person this guy actually is but well i i actually think that this is like a really interesting i mean i think that this this sort of debate has probably always been around um or you know around as long as <laughs> there have been documentaries for it to be around about but i i i feel like in the past five to ten years i've seen a lot more like public discourse about the ethics of certain documentaries and i think that's just because documentaries have gained so much more cultural cachet and are so much easier to watch now than they used to be and i i mean i think it's it's a it's an interesting question to have i have definitely watched documentaries and this is not the worst one by any means that i've seen but i i have definitely watched documentaries where i'm just like this is like fucking disgusting that they made this movie like it is not okay that this happened there are a number of them that i that i could list off that i've seen where i'm like this to me feels definitively unethical or at the very least that we should be having this discussion about if this is ethical in a way that the movie is clearly not right like you don't have a right to make a movie just because like the subject falls in front of you right i don't know so yeah i i don't know a lot about him let me see i mean i i watch both fire documentaries they make a really exciting double feature, I'll tell you that. But um, And I watched all of Tiger King, which I would say is certainly compelling and is also kind of an unethical <laughs> thing, I would say. Um, it looks like he was a producer on that. I have not oh, watched... I didn't see that. Yeah. I'm looking at Letterboxd here and they don't have TV stuff, so... Yeah, I have not watched The Disappearance of Madeline McCain, which is up on Netflix. Anyway, I, it's, it, I don't know. It's It's a complicated thing. I just think that for me, in my position as a social worker, mental health professional, like watching this, I felt like this was ethically dubious. And that was hard for me to watch. But not everyone may agree with me. I don't think it's one of those absolute black and white things. I mean, a lot of it comes down to consent. Like, did this guy like, is this guy capable of consenting to this? Yeah, yeah, he probably was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. he's not. Uh, <laughs> he's not that off the wall that he's right. Yeah. So, so then it comes down to sort of other ethical questions, which I think are more sticky and more complex than like just, yes, you should have done this or no, you shouldn't have done this. But for me, watching it made it challenging. 
Shall we pick our next movie? Yeah. So let me pull the random number generator up here. We have yet to get a repeat on this, right? We haven't. No. I feel like that's bound to happen one of these days. Uh, Indeed. All right. So this time I got 94. What does that give us? 94. <laughs> Waiting for Superman. <sighs> Dude, I didn't remember we watched that for group. We did. Okay. I, like, I knew that I had seen it. I don't remember. I, I remember literally nothing about it. I have a lot of feelings about charter schools now that I didn't <laughs> Yeah, that's going to be yeah, a lot of a lot of new context going on for that. Is that available somewhere? Oh, good question. Um <laughs> I would guess yes. Most of these I guess yeah, it was are, it but... was pretty high profile at the time, so it's probably still floating around. Yep, it is on both Prime and Hulu. Okay. Well. So, I guess I guess we'll watch that then. <laughs> Yeah, that should be fun. It is an hour and 50 minutes. That is too long. Okay. It's a lot of uh, documentary, yeah. It is. Okay. Well, shall we wrap up with what we've been watching? Yeah, why don't you go ahead and start this time? You watch anything good lately? Have I watched anything good lately? I watched, speaking of documentaries, I watched... The uh, documentary on Netflix about Bikram Yogi Guru Predator, um, about the guy who sort of popularized what he called Bikram Yoga uh, in the U.S. and who, shock of all shocks, was basically starting a cult. Uh, Makes sense. (laughs) And uh, sexually assaulted and uh, harassed many of his female staff and other instructors and who was yeah i mean it's um i thought it was pretty good i watch a lot of these docu- i mean basically if there is a documentary about a cult to watch i watch it so mm-hmm. um i mean in a lot of ways if you watch a lot of those things then probably it will hit familiar beats for you but if you like those beats um it's pretty well made and worth watching i think <laughs> so a thing that happened the other uh, last week i think is that every once in a while uh david chen who is a phenomenal podcaster who does a lot of really awesome work and who I've been a fan of for a really long time, he will post on Twitter that he's watching something in this group thing. And if you want to come watch, just like click on the link and come. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I've seen that. I haven't I have yet to join any of those, but I, I would like to one of these days. So this was the first time I ever did. I just I happened to have the time and he posted it. And apparently Prime now has a new group watch app, which is cool. I haven't tried it yet other than this. Um, but it seemed to work well. And so he said, I'm going to be watching this movie, Serenity, that stars Matthew McConaughey. Uh, so, and he's like, it is a completely crazy movie. And I can't believe it got made. I would like to, like, watch it with some of you. And he didn't even stay through the whole thing. He stayed through, like, half of it until the big twist, because there's a big twist. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know if you remember, but I saw this movie. I did not remember. Okay, no, I... I can't even remember what it was. For some reason, I saw it in the theater. For some reason, I ended up with a night with nothing to do, and I'd been seeing people tweet about this fucking batshit crazy movie that had just come out with Matthew McConaughey, who I really like. So I decided to go watch it, and it was not a good decision. But uh, <laughs> continue. Keep going. I guess I'm trying should, – should we spoil it, or should we – I mean, who the fuck cares? Like I, uh... – <laughs> Okay, okay. We're going to do spoilers for the 2019 film Serenity. Skip ahead a few minutes if you don't want to hear this. Yeah. Okay, spoilers coming. So, in this movie, Matthew McConaughey is a really weird person who's trying to catch a giant fish. Nothing that is happening really makes a lot of sense. 
until well I won't say until it doesn't make a lot more sense then but (laughs) there is a point in the movie about halfway through at which point you discover that Matthew McConaughey is actually a video game character that has been created by a child who fashioned him after his father. Was it really halfway through? My memory was that that twist was towards the end, but no, no, it was about well, maybe maybe two thirds. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, that's who fashioned him after his father, and has been playing this game and has recently changed the game to to make it so that his mission, instead of catching this giant fish, which had something to do with a kid's memory of his father, his mission now is to murder the child's abusive uh, stepfather. Right. Um, And then the child murders his abusive stepfather in a very bizarre... (laughs) It was a lot, Joel. It was a lot. Yeah, no, and, like, honestly, like, if you're listening to this because you're not worried about spoilers and you haven't seen it, I guarantee you, no matter how weird it sounds and how weird what you're picturing is, it's weirder. I guarantee it's weirder. Absolutely. But, and yet somehow less interesting. <laughs> that was the, that was the thing that was really kind of blew my mind about it was that it it was it's one of the most bizarre premises I've ever heard that they really commit to. They do, but it's, it's just so goddamn boring. It is just not worth watching, in my opinion. That, that's, See, I disagree. I think this is a great movie. Okay, so to you're, watch you're on that side of it because I know someone you want to make fun of it with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Because there are there is a group of people who genuinely love it. And, oh no 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 no! But <laughs> let me be yeah, clear. I, I did not love this movie. Okay. But I was actively mad that I was watching it with like five guys who I didn't know and who did not appreciate how funny I was. I think that I think that if I had watched this with Allison, it would have been amazing. Yeah, probably. If you really love watching bad movies and making fun of them and you have someone who is good to do that with, I think this is a great pick, honestly. So I watched that. I'm not recommending it per se, but like, you know, it's there and it's on Amazon and I don't know, like... I watched the new season of The Expanding Universe of Ashley Garcia, which is like a Netflix show that looks and sounds a lot like a sort of Disney original. It has that kind of uh, vibe to it. Um, But it is made by an almost entirely Latino group of people. And it's cute. It's dumb. But like, it's cute. If you are into like the Disney original series type of stuff and you think those things are like soothing or whatever, it's a sweet show. It's ridiculous. She's like a PhD who's like 16 and is trying to figure sure, out it. Yeah, why not? You know, it's it's a silly thing, but it's sweet. It's harmless. It's like it's it's a little better. Like it seems aimed a little older than some of those Disney shows. Um, so, yeah, if you're like, I would like 14 episodes of a 30 minute show that is like harmless and fun. It's it's cute. I I'm I'm down with it. I'll watch more. What about you, Joel? What have you been watching? Well, I've, I mean, I've actually I've watched a fair amount of stuff since the last time we recorded, so I'm I'm kind of scrolling through here and trying to to narrow down because we probably don't need to go through all of it. One thing that I watched, I think, like the day after we recorded last time, I I found this uh, this this little known, rarely seen artifact on Disney Plus called Hamilton. <laughs> oh no, are you going to shit talk Hamilton? No, so I mean, it was. <laughs> It was it was about seventy percent good, I would say. Um, All right, it's more than I expected from you. I, I will say uh, the, the the one like 
snarky thing that I will say about it is that I did find it very like personally on like a very smug level. I found it very satisfying to discover. I mean, without any question, no contest whatsoever. Lin-Manuel Miranda is the weakest link in that cast. He's, oh, 100 percent. I mean, I, I, he's not I a particularly he, good actor. He's Next not, to all of the rest of them, he doesn't seem like a good singer. He's not a very good rapper. He's way too old for the part. He like, clearly can't dance. Um, yeah, because <laughs> I, I found that very satisfying, like on a on a, a very smug level. But. I am somewhat. Joel does not like Lin-Manuel Miranda. He, well, this is OK. Hold on. Hold on. I, I dislike his public persona. I find his Twitter presence insanely obnoxious. He's one of the only people I've ever muted on Twitter. I rarely use that feature. But I I don't I don't have any objection to him as an artist from the stuff that I've seen. I he, I know he worked on the music on Moana, which I love, which is another thing that I watched mm-hmm. recently. I rewatched that and I love I still love that movie. He had uh, a role as like a funny version of himself on a couple seasons ago in Curb Your Enthusiasm. He had a recurring role and I thought he was hilarious. So I don't necessarily object to him or his work per se, but I, I am not a fan of his uh, his whole you're a special star born beautiful, you know, the world revolves around you and you should all feel wonderful about everything all the time. I would consider that to be an extremely <laughs> incorrect version of Lynn Manuel, but that's fine. You don't have to like Lynn's Twitter presence. I I. I'm fond of Lynn in a general sense. Uh, when he was doing the whole year of Good Morning, Good Nights, that was a really fucking rough year, and I found them to be very meaningful to me, even though, yes, of course, they're cheesy and dumb, but, like, it was a year where there was not a lot of positive happening yep. for me, and it meant something. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that it... Because, obviously, I'm in the minority on this. A lot of people found them very helpful and inspiring and all that, and I'm glad that's the case, but they just really graded on me. As, Which is fine. I, yeah. like, I like Lynn a lot. I am glad that he is out there doing what he does. I think he's a very good writer. I don't well, think there's right. any that's, that's, question... I, <laughs> All the credit in the world that because I, I I can't even begin to imagine how you put together like a two and a half hour play that is all music and somehow managed to make the music all like distinct, but also in a way interchangeable where you can just like weave songs from the yeah, previous act. Yeah. Like I can't I can't even get my head around how you would even conceive of that, let alone how you would actually pull it off. One of the things that I really liked after after Hamilton, there were a few different posts that were like, you know, there were a few different people being like, tell me what your favorite rhyme scheme or like what your favorite rhyming couplet or whatever is in Hamilton. And like, really, like some of them are just so impressive. Yeah, (laughs) there's there's some things in there that if if you read them, they clearly do not rhyme. Right. No, but But there's no doubt. I, I went to go see Hamilton live a few years ago. It was fucking magic. I sobbed like a baby for three whole hours, like whatever. But, you know, obviously it was the it was the on the road group. So it was a new cast. Um, this was the first time I had seen Lynn perform it. Although, of course, I've listened to the um, the Broadway soundtrack many times. But um, and there is no doubt. Like I was watching it, and I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> I love him so much!" And also, he's just not a very good actor. He clearly can't dance, which is probably like everyone around him is doing this fucking insane shit, <laughs> and he's like. Yeah. Um, you know, he is absolutely the weak link. It is what it is. It's fine. But um, I'm, honestly, I didn't think you would like it that much. So I'm, well, I think I think I gave it a seven. And so I guess I could I could probably go on about this for quite a while, actually. But I mean, there are a couple things that immediately stood out as uh, I mean, just really 
the most obvious one is that um, David Diggs should be able to do whatever he wants for the rest of his life because he's one of the most impressive presences I've ever seen anywhere. And every time he was on the stage, it was just immediately like, oh, I want this is interesting now. <laughs> I want to pay attention to this. And also, Renee Elise Goldsberry as Angelica was. Oh my God. So, yes. I mean. I think I think probably most people can agree absolutely no contest that the highlight of the whole show is her uh, um, satisfied. satisfied right and I mean that particularly combined with the the previous song Isa's song is I mean just one of the, just incredible storytelling and the, the I'm I, I'm kind of a sucker for the thing of showing a. A bit of narrative and then retracing it and showing it from a different perspective that recontextualizes everything and it's one of the best examples of that I've ever seen. It is yeah, doing that on stage. It looks quite, it's so right. cool. The in terms of the music, the performance, the vocal delivery, the stagecraft of it, it's like head and shoulders above everything else in the play, which is almost a problem because it happens like halfway through the first act. Well, that's really interesting. I don't think that. I mean, Satisfied is one of my favorite songs. Um, I also think that I can't remember. I can't remember the woman who played um, Eliza. But I think I think Burn like Burn is one of my favorite songs play. I think her performance. I mean, it's not like as technically intense as uh, Satisfied is by any means, but I think it's a fucking phenomenal. I don't know. I. Whatever. I love nine-tenths of the songs. Um, I do think the Satisfied is probably the best one. But also, Wait For It is really fucking great. I liked Wait For It a lot, and there was there was interesting stuff going on in that song. I, I also really enjoyed the, the, the concept of the uh, the cabinet meetings as rap battles. That was really yes. entertaining. I, although I will say that, mo I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not particularly a fan of rap. It's never, a, it's not a musical genre that I ever really got into. Uh, but I was still with Almost all the rapping, except for Insatisfied, I was like, they slowed this down by like seventy percent for for old white people, right? Because this is <laughs> they're more. This is is this even really rapping? Like, well, the fun the funny thing is that that it it holds a, a Guinness record for the fastest raps ever on Broadway. Okay, <laughs> it was have there been other raps? <laughs> well, I don't know. It was initially because I know Angelica's is like Angelica's Insatisfied is pretty fast and. When and then there's um, the one by uh, Hercules that is like the fastest one. But mm. initially, uh, when Lynn was writing it, apparently he he tried to he tried to make it so that so that Angelica and some of the others would would like so Angelica specifically would be able to rap. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, it, it's not it's it's not super fast rap or whatever. It's, it's, it's sort of its own thing. I mean, it's, it's rap show tunes. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and there's, I, I had other issues. There's, I, I am a little bit put off by the, the propaganda aspect of it. And there is something that rubs me the wrong way about having a scene where a character lectures Thomas Jefferson about slavery when Thomas Jefferson is played by a black guy. I mean, I'm sure there's been, it, that's all been analyzed and discussed to death by people who know much more about these things than I do, so we don't need to go into detail about it. But something about it did definitely rub me the wrong way. So there were there were things like that. I but. definitely, I know the, pro 
propaganda thing runs around a lot. I personally think the better description for Hamilton is historical fan fiction, which is, in my mind, a little different than propaganda. Whatever. I mean, I think that... Like, I do not want to say that Hamilton is without fault. I don't think that is true. I certainly think it is, like, not a perfect property. Um, I don't know if such a thing exists, but it is definitely not Hamilton. But it is fucking fun. And it's really, really well written and done. And I love it. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's fair. I, en- I I will say I enjoyed it more than I expected to. I was expecting to be a lot more bothered by the propaganda aspect of it. So... Uh, I really expected you to come out harder. Yeah. So let's see. I've also, I mentioned I rewatched Moana, which I still love. I hadn't seen it since the theater. So I was glad to last night I watched the new Werner Herzog movie that is currently on movie. I don't know if you ever check their stuff. Only occasionally. I didn't know there was a new one. Yeah. He has a new one that they actually, they premiered it. So it's not, you can't, I don't think you can get it anywhere else yet. It's called family romance, LLC. Okay. And it is about a thing that apparently is a major thing in Japan these days where you can there are these companies that will will rent out people to come to your like family events or something things like that to pretend to be uh so like for example there's a scene where a uh, a guy gets hired to come to a wedding to pretend to be the father of the bride. Because the father, the real father of the bride is an alcoholic and he will make an idiot of himself if he shows up at the wedding. So they hire this guy to come and be like the stand in for the father of the bride. And the, the, the main plot of the movie is one the, the guy, the guy that it follows is doing this job where he is pretending to be the father of this 12 year old girl who left when she was like two. And it's a very, it's a weird, like, apparently the, the, the lead actor in it is actually not an actor. He is actually a guy who, I think Family Romance LLC is the actual name of the company, and he is actually the guy who founded it. But it's all fictionalized. I mean, it's all, but it was also a, a mostly improvised in terms of the dialogue, apparently. Hmm. Um, but it was, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good and a really, I mean, just, it was a, a sort of a fascinating cultural thing that I had never heard of. And there was a lot of, a lot of really interesting stuff, a lot of really funny stuff. You know, I, I, you know, Herzog is one of my favorite directors and he has been for a very long time. So I will watch, I will watch anything he does. And I, I almost always like it. So, and this was no exception. I thought it was really good. I think that expires in a couple of days. If you're, okay, if you're well, curious, I have time this weekend. Maybe I'll look it up. Yeah. And there's, a, there's like, because they premiered it, they did like a, before they put it in like their 30 day rotation, they did like an actual like screening of it that you could purchase tickets to that included a little introduction by him and then like a little Q and A afterwards. And all of that is, that's all there on the, like you, you see all that when you're watching it on movie. Oh, cool. Let's see. I watched a, another thing on movie the other day called Ganja and Hess. That is a black exploitation art vampire movie. Mm-hmm. That was really fucking good. I would I would highly recommend that. It starred um, uh, Dwayne Jones, who was the, the the lead in Night of the Living Dead. I believe this was the only other lead role he ever had. Uh, was a really cool movie. I had never really heard of it before, but I thought it sounded interesting, so I decided to check it out, and it was cool as hell. So I for sure heard of it. Isn't it usually like referenced back to when? I feel like when uh, Spike Lee's The Sweet Blood of Jesus came out. Well, that, no, that's what I was I was about to say. Apparently, The Sweet Blood of Jesus was actually a remake of it. I hadn't. Right. That's I, I haven't about. seen that, but apparently it was actually a remake. Um, and then this morning I watched another, some more 
also on Mubi currently, uh, sponsor us, Mubi. <laughs> they have three short documentaries by a woman named Madeline Anderson, who apparently was the first known, at least the, the first uh, black woman to ever direct a documentary. Oh. Um, at least that we, that has survived. Um, so she did these I mean, she did several, but they had three of her short documentaries that all together were like an hour long. So I watched all three of them this morning. The first one is called Integration Report One, which I don't know if there are more integration reports by other people or if she intended to make more and never did. But it's basically what it sounds like. It was it was just like a short roundup of where the fight for integration was at in 1960. And it includes part of a speech by Dr. King and some other some really interesting stuff that I was uh, there was a, a, a scene from a, a protest rally about the uh, I can't remember where it was, but police had murdered a black man who they arrested for not throwing his garbage in the trash can. And then they ended up murdering him. So, yeah, you know, the more things change. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then the second one was called A Tribute to Malcolm X, which is, again, it's exactly what it sounds like. It was like a 15 minute. It was after his death. Um, mm-hmm. Compilation of. Uh, interview footage and some speeches that he did and also some uh, some interviews of his widow and then uh the third one was called i am somebody it was a about a uh strike by uh black women medical workers in charleston in the late 60s that apparently was a big big story at the time they, they ended up it was it was literally a, a group of like 400 women protesting for um better pay and for union recognition and they ended up calling in the fucking national guard on them so also so also really interesting they're all three worth checking out and like i said all three together they're like an hour long yeah so, oh, that sounds great yeah i would i'm a little behind on my goal of uh one third of my movies being female oh, there you go. So. <laughs> yeah okay so I, i've watched some other stuff lately but i think that's uh that's more than enough probably yeah cool all right. Well, I guess we will talk about charter schools next time. <laughs> yeah, that is, man. See, no, I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk about that now, because that is not an issue that I feel at all qualified to talk about. So I, and I know that I'm sure it is something that, you know, considerably more about now than you did then. Uh, so I'm curious. Certainly considerably more now than I do that, but probably yeah. still not enough to be. Uh, well, and I also I don't remember anything about the documentary, so I'm, I'm curious to. I think I, I think it was one that I only watched once. I think I don't think we rewatched it like we did with some of them, and so I, I think I probably only saw it the one time. Yeah, no, that makes sense. All right, well, we'll see how it goes. Uh huh. We'll see you all next time. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.